Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have the honor to speak with Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, Dr. Imani Perry, for a 2018 published book through our friends at UNC Press entitled, May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem. Welcome to the show, Dr. Perry. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, and, you know, we, as you know, as we uh, spoke at length offline and, and other channels, you know, it, it's it's great that we were able to get together. And sometimes the best things are those that come to those who wait. <laughs> and so I think that this is uh, a representative sample of that. Yes. It took us a little while, but we've got it together now. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I, we always like to start out um, with a little informal chat about really what, you know, what was it about, you know, your upbringing that to me, you know, is why you came to this particular book, uh, May We Forever Stand, uh, because you've written, obviously, some other books mm-hmm. uh, all the way back, you know, 04 with uh, Prophets of the Hood. So, you know, you're, you've definitely written about you know, uh, uh, ethnomusicology and, yeah. and music in general. But what in particular about um, maybe your upbringing and other parts um, uh, of your of your upbringing and your world that brought you to this particular book? Yeah, um, I appreciate that question. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's different pieces, but I know part of it is, you know, so I was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1972, um, so just, you know, kind of nine years after the, uh, the, the children's crusade. Um, and I was a, a migrant child. So moved up North in childhood and went home in summers. And, uh, and then I come, I become an adult, right. And I am in the field. I, I do both legal scholarship and African-American studies. And I guess one of the things that was always in the back of my mind is that there's, there's a piece of who I am and the culture from which I come that I found, um, not necessarily missing, but kind of underexplored, under interrogated, in the mainstream body of African American studies scholarship, um, there's a lot, and so th- in particular, a lot about the Deep South and the cultural forces in the Deep South and the formation and the full kind of spectrum of Black life um, that was, as far as I was concerned, precisely what made it possible for for us to, you know, for our folks to transform the nation and even the world. Um, and so, you know, that at at its core is really what brought me to this book, right? Because the story of the of Lift Every Voice and Sing is really a story about a particular dimension of Black life. It's about resilience and resistance and ritual and organizing um, and networked, you know, the networks that existed amongst Black folks. And so the song and the, tracing the path of the song allowed me to tell this story that I, um, that I feel like we need to we need to return to or a dimension of our lives that we need to in our history that we need to mine further. Yes. And um, to that point, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we we know each other because your uh, your your mother is my uh, my, my advisor. Yes. And the reason why I'm going to a PhD <laughs> program, uh, the, the, the great Dr. Teresa Perry. Great Dr. Shout Dr. out to you. Perry. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, you know, so I learned uh, a lot from her about, you know, her trajectory as, as a scholar and, yeah. and a bit about you as well. And so, you know, that is great. But also, I thought when you talk about your return, the, the return, right? Yeah. So can you talk about specifically where this song originates yeah. and kind of, you know, the return to this particular song and, and it's, uh, in its particular cultural moment in the United States for African-Americans. Sure. So, um, so the song is written in 1900 by James Weldon Johnson, who, who writes the lyrics and his brother, Rosamond Johnson, who is the composer. Um, they're natives of Jacksonville, Florida. 
Um, shout out to Florida. Yes, shout out to Florida. <laughs> um, and and really were these kind of extraordinary Renaissance men. You know, they were race men and Renaissance men, meaning they had a deep sense of striving. Um, born in the 1870s, you know, um, born right after, I mean, sort of at the, at the tail end of Reconstruction. So they come of age in the midst of the establishment of Jim Crow. And one of the things that I really wanted to focus on is that I think is extraordinary about what Black folks did in that period is like, you know, here's the society turning his back on the promise of freedom, on the promise of citizenship. And yet Black folks actually aren't defeated in response. Instead, they start to do this extraordinary building of institutions, striving, you know, um, not pursuing literacy, pursuing formal education in music, building civic organizations, political organizations, like sort of as you know, as the phrase goes, building them a world, right? And um, and they're part of that. And so they write. They're both educators at the time. Um, Rosamond teaches at Florida Baptist Academy, and James Eldon Johnson was the principal of the Stanton School, which they had both graduated from. They had to leave um, Jacksonville to get high school and college education, but they came back to the area as adults. And um, so they wrote the song to be sung on Lincoln's birthday. And initially it was going to be a song, you know, for Lincoln. And, and for those who know the lyrics, it's totally, it, it, it doesn't become that. It sort of scratched that, you know, scratched that plan and really write the story of black people uh, on these shores in epic terms, you know, uh, um, a story of endurance, a story of striving, um, a beautiful composition. And that's important in that moment, just generally, but specifically because it was a period of Black people writing themselves into history, right? So people who were described as not having any history that was worthy to speak of at all. And so, and, and instead they take this and they offer it to children. So the first public singing of the song is 500 school children in Jacksonville. Um, and soon thereafter they move away, but the song spreads organically because uh, it, it resonated, wow. it resonated so deeply with people, you know, so. That, that story is tremendous because, you know, as, you know, as I brought up, you know, go Florida, I'm a yes. native Floridian and, um, Jacksonville, Florida has a, it's a peculiar place. You know, it's, it's, it's located, you know, in this, you know, I had a scholar on a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, Florida exceptionalism and how, uh, Florida is not seen as, uh, a part of the solid South. Um, you know, at least in our conception of what that is. And you brought up, you know, it, it we're, we're neighbors oh, in the yeah. fact of you're Alabama so, and I'm Florida, so yeah, you know, I mean, and so <laughs> exactly. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, yeah. there's a lot going on. If you live in Mobile, you take the airport yeah. from Alabama or from uh, from Pensacola. Um, but but Jacksonville, considering not only its name, right, Jackson, you know, Andrew Jackson, or the fact that, you know, you had, uh, you know, African-Americans who were, you know, collectivizing themselves there in, in, a, in a fairly bit of a, a bit of a stronghold. Right. And so you see that in, in Stanton. And I, you know, as someone who went to Florida A&M University, shouts out to the Rattlers. Um, you have a number of people every single year that throw out the Duval, you know, because it's a very it's it's a particular kind of identity yeah. that they have coming from there. Um, and so it's intriguing to hear about how this song spreads also at a time when, you know, the great migration of African-Americans yeah. <laughs> or quote unquote great, um, I dispute that kind of great part, especially in this moment. But, um, you know, African-Americans, as the Johnson brothers and others right. did, they they went to their limit mm-hmm. as far as education. They went north. Um but yes. the great part is they came yeah. back. They came back and they left they again. They wound back. up going to New York after the Jacksonville fire. But I right. think, you know, I think there's a couple things. One is um, I, I love the way you frame that because, you know, there's the Florida exceptionalism thing that people do and they do it with New Orleans too. And the lesson is really though that the South is a, is a, is a very, is a culturally rich and varied region, Right. And we sort of painted in very broad breaststrokes generally, but there are so many specifics to each locale and in each locale within each state. And to me, the thing that's interesting about the song is that it resonated across these cultural differences. Like one of the things that I sometimes say is like, keep in mind that the black population in Alabama 
is the same as the entire population in Trinidad. Like these are little islands of, <laughs> of, of state, you know, of culture, right? Yeah. And so, wow. and so I never thought um, about it that way, you know, wow. so that even across these differences, right, these different types of environments, that, you know, from the plantation economy to the rising urban South, to the historically black colleges, you know, that are that are developing, that become that are primarily in the South, that become spaces where black folks from all over the world are migrating to in order to get, you know, to get access to education. The song resonates in all these different spaces. And that to me is part of what's what's important, right? So this very particular, a lot of people who write about the Jackson brothers really exceptionalize them, but I like to see them, their distinctiveness in this very rich fabric of black life instead, you know what I mean? Instead of uh, set apart. Right. And so when I also think about, you know, your, your, your talk about their life as coming back and leaving after the after the fire and, and and going elsewhere. What else did they do? Because if I'm not mistaken, right, uh, the the NAACP and James Weldon Johnson are very much, uh, uh, and, and, you know, they're very much connected. Yes. Are, are they not? Yes, and you know, I mean, I for years I said, um, and this was before I even began writing this book. I was like, you know, there's a way in which James Weldon Johnson gets totally overshadowed by Du Bois and, and doesn't get his rightful place, and because he was extraordinary, so. You know, he was the first black person admitted to practice law in the state of Florida. Um, he was a, a mm-hmm. poet, a novelist. He was the first secretary general of the NAACP and with Du Bois was uh, principally uh, involved in making the NAACP a networked organization by building local, cha- local chapters throughout the South, which was really how the NAACP became a black organization and not sort of a white liberal organization with a few black people, but it was the Southern chapters that gave it a foundation and a black identity. And they were doing that, going small town to small town in the 19-teens, building chapters. And then he really became like a father of the Harlem Renaissance. He nurtured all of, you know, of these artists and, and, and writers and intellectuals of the f- subsequent generation. Also on that particular point, um, both brothers have, you know, they're, 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 they're both people who, you know, the song are, you know, they, they're the, you know, the foundation of the book, right? There's no may we forever stand uh, unless they, they, you know, unless we uh, have them do this work. Um, and before we go any further, did you know the lyrics to the song, you know, like verbatim prior to you writing this book too? I wanted to ask that before you get too too much further in the, in the chronology of the book. Yeah, I mean, I knew the first two verses very well. And the third, I would say I knew probably about 75% of it. But I it, it, you know, and it's funny because people use it as a kind of litmus test. <laughs> test <laughs> the, the, all right, uh, th- this is the proverbial brown paper bag test in the 2018. <laughs> Do you know the song or not? Right? How far can you go? And I think you know, I knew it because I, you know, I've always loved the song, which makes sense why I would spend years of my life writing about it. You know, like yeah, so. Um, it always resonated really deeply with me. And and for me, that was also, I mean, it was sort of telling because I was not, you know, I didn't grow up in a school, I didn't go into schools where we sang it every week for assembly or every morning before the school day. For me, it was most more often ceremonial occasions, right? Like Kwanzaa, Black History Month, Martin Luther King breakfast, like, you know, church service. Like it was, it, it, so it wasn't like the ritual of every week and yet it still had, such a deep impact on me that I I knew it. Right. And so also, you know, going back to the chronology, because because I, I wanted to make sure that the listeners knew that about that, because I'm not going to lie. I when I saw the book on Twitter, I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And then I remember there was a, a MLK um, just, uh, uh, um, lecture that Mark Lamont Hill gave at uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City that I that I watch a lot. And he actually had them and he spoke about James Weldon Johnson and, you know, he made everyone get up and and sing it. And he was like, all right, all right. He got, I think the second verse was like, all right, right, y'all did good enough Uh, because, you know, I was like, dang. (laughs) So I've actually been listening. I've been listening uh, through title um, for uh, the B.B. Winans version um, that that, that he did. Uh, And so I was like, okay, uh I think I've found my version because there's so many different versions 
of the song. Yeah. And it's kind of like Strange Fruit in the in the thought of the way that Billie Holiday sang Strange Fruit. And in comparison to Nina Simone's singing, to me, brings a, it evokes different um, emotions, right? The same tra- transcript right. on the on the words are the same, but how the individual uh, uh, sings it to me evokes that, and I think that also was a great transition to kind of how once uh, let me see, I heard Michael Eric Dyson said this one time about you know uh, the use of the N word. You know that uh, that 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 uh, that album that Cornell West came out with, you know, years back in, in the mid two thousand, Talib Kweli and all these people, and they had an N word thing with a uh, Tavis Smiley and and, and uh, Michael Eric Dyson. He said once the art leaves, how it touches people is you know you don't have a say in that um and i think that for lift every voice and sing Uh that's another thing as well um because how it is named is largely it changes you know per generation really um is something that i saw in your book yes yes it changes and so i you know what's really interesting about the the point you made um with recorded versions i mean it really is like after the 1960s that you get a lot of experimentation with different ways of singing the song. And one of the things, and I think it really in some ways is a testament to the way the society started to change, right? Like, so it tended to be sort of much more faithful to one rendition earlier on. And then as the society opens up, it gets reinterpreted. Um, So it's one piece, but I think the other thing is that, you know, what's interesting to me about it is that, its name changes, obviously. Right. So first, National Negro Hymn, Negro National Anthem, and then, you know, in the context of Black Power and Black Consciousness, the Black National Anthem. Though what that designation changing, on the one hand, is a sign of like a different political moment. But on the other hand, it's a sign of the political moment changes, but people don't want to let the song go, you know? So yes, yes. You know, people hold fast to it. Um, you know, there's at ver- various moments where it has a little bit of competition. You know, it gets displaced in the kind of mainstream civil rights movement for a few years. And then, you know, Nina Simone makes, she says she wants to make Young, Gifted, and Black the version, you know, to displace, lift every voice and sing doesn't quite... Um, succeed at that but i think but it's interesting that it it you know people hold fast to it even as the politics change um and the moment changes and to that uh point as well when you look at how the different movements in black life whether it's the garvey movement whether it's you know the uh, 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 the expansion of the NAACP, especially, um, you know, as the 20s and 30s and the unfortunate death of James Weldon Johnson come about. Yeah. It starts to, as you say, move, move, move. And, you know, it moves throughout all these different continuums. And I think that um, another part of the book that I thought was very much profound was how you construct your... Um, your 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 conversation around this term called black formalism, yeah. especially in the context where, as um, James Weldon Johnson and his brother are you know are finishing their schooling and they're um, developing the song you know before the uh, NAACP is founded, what is it? What is to me interesting is that the term that you use that people might think of when they read your definition being the politics of respectability that Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham brought about mm-hmm. to the world in her, I think, early 1990s book, Righteous Discontent about Black Baptist women, right? Mm-hmm. How are, you know, can you talk to us about, you know, where you found, how did you come up with that term and sure. also its meaning is and deviations from um, the politics of respectability? Sure. And I, I, I appreciate you asking that question because this is one of the most important pieces of the book to me. So, you know, the politics of respectability, which I think in, in its popular usage gets a little bit further afield from what Professor Higginbotham was initially yes. talking yes. about. But, you know, she was talking about respectability as a political strategy, right? So that this advocacy of ideals of middle class, largely white notions of respectability for black people to adopt those as an argument against their being excluded from the dominant society, 
So it was like, you know, it was like a, per- a politics of performance. It's a way of resisting, right? Um, through, through, um, through behavior, through attire, all those sorts of things. So important to understand strategically, um, you know, as a, and it took, had some different dimensions, you know, some of it was, was very kind of bourgeois. Some of it was, um, uh, the work of like Nanny Helen Burroughs, who's a working class woman who organized domestic laborers, you know, who to, to professionalize their work. Um, so it's important, it's important to understand as a strategy, um, what I wanted to focus on was behaviors that sometimes were similar or look very similar, but were not about making an argument to white America, but what black people did internal to black communities as part of creating social organization. You know, so after, if we think about like being enslaved was really the refusal, black people couldn't have institutional cultures in slavery. They all had to be fugitive right? They all had to be steal away meetings, the hush harbor, like being running, you know, going out in the middle of the night to try to have church, you know, secretively learning to read. Then after emancipation, there's this opportunity to create a world. And so, and all communities have formal practices through institutions. So when I talk about black formalism, I'm talking about a, a pretty universal human behavior where, you know, there's notions of appropriateness, there's notions of certain ritual occasions. You have to move a certain way, dress a certain way. You have a different kind of language. You have a different type of presentation, all those sorts of things in a formal context as opposed to a vernacular one. And I wanted to talk about that in the context of Black communities. Uh, one, because so much of those, those things have been sort of in popular culture have been collapsed into the idea of politics of respectability, but also because... In academia, we've, and, and this is me included, we've spent so much energy talking about the vernacular that we haven't sort of given a sense of the full spectrum of Black life, really. You know, so like, you know, when the people who are engaged in this pageantry or performances at school, memorizing your, you know, your your Easter speech for, you know, those types of behaviors that are all part of oh, Black yeah. formalism. It's not that there's a, there's a different community going to the juke joint or to the club, right? It's like it's time. Oh, yeah. It's oh, time and, place. and so I wanted to recuperate an understanding that there's a you know sense of time and place and appropriateness is not the same thing as a rejection of those other spaces. It's just you do culture is always requires you to do different things at different <laughs> different times, right? And you know, so I, so that was really oh, yeah kind of the the impetus uh for it for me because I, I i it was it's concerning i think when people uh because people are so dismissive with the term politics of respectability now that you can sort of there can be a throwing the baby out with the bathwater as it were but we can miss a lot that's really important yes. both about our history but also about our cultural practices and so to the people who are listening to this that some of what you're saying sounds kind of like code switching would code switching be more, I guess, in you know the way that most people think about code switching, right? Um, is code switching more within the confines of the politics of respectability in comparison to your construction of black formalism? Well, see, I think this is one of the ways where it, where there's a lot of overlap. Okay. So what I mean is like, so we code switch when we go to, um, you know, when we enter into predominantly white environments. Yes. Because, and it's an exercise in translation, right? So I'm going to speak standard English because that is what is understood in this environment. And this is what I, and there's a kind of value placed on standard English. So this is what I need to navigate it. So that's, I think, so that's sort of, you know, I guess part of the spectrum of politics of respectability, but it's also being multilingual, right? Something that multilingual exactly, people Exactly, exactly. But, but there's also a way we do that within Black communities, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't talk to our friends the same way we talk to our grandmamas. Lord, we should. Sh- <laughs> right? I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here if that right. was the case. No, right. So there's, or, or church. You're not going to talk the same way at church as you do at the club. Again, so... So there's a way in which our language shifts based mm-hmm. upon environment internally that I think is distinct from the way it does externally, but oftentimes it may feel the same, right? Like, so if I'm, even if, even if we're at schools that are hundred percent black, 
the likelihood that, you know, we want to get good grades, right? And be seen as the bright kid, right? We're going to perform a kind of code switching in order to ex- engage in that exchange value, even without the presence of white folks. So I think it's a real complicated, you know, there's a complicated as it overlap, is. you know, um, okay. in those spaces. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I, you know, I didn't want to believe the point. I just wanted to make sure um, because as I was listening to you and after, you know, also reading the book, I was like, you know, this, this like you're saying, there's so much overlap yeah. and it also brings up, you know, there's so many, you know, there, there, there are different definitions for different things and you want to keep on coming up and keep theorizing while also understanding that we build on certain things as well right. um, over the course of time. And so, you know, the part about originality, uh, you know, especially, you know, I think it even connects to talk about originality. And when it comes to the song, um, because as you brought up before, there were different people at different times who wanted to bring up different songs oh, yeah. to usurp the, you know, um, um, lift every voice and sing or the, you know, uh, Negro national anthem or the black national anthem, uh-huh. depending on the course of time. But this song stood the test of time, right? Yeah. And it in many ways embodies the, the central uh, experience of black folks that no matter what, right. Mm-hmm. You may try to lynch us, right. which you did. You may try. Obviously, we see what's going on in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and, and and what Brian Stevenson is doing down there. Mm-hmm. But you see, you know, all these different things, right? Black folks going into the military, yeah, yeah, being killed, right, for trying to wear what they justly earned, mm-hmm. yeah, and that right. no matter what, yeah. we gonna be here, right? Yeah. yeah. And as Kendrick Lamar would later say, we're going to be all right. And so um, that's, I think, the part about the song and also about your black about black formalism is that a lot of this is constructed within the confines of its institutional life. Yes. Something that as the 1940s wanes and goes into the 1950s and as the NAACP takes on a very uh, legal, you know, framework and legal push. Um, it starts to shift the the confines of black life in maybe ways that it may not have initially intended that yeah. also have certain consequences and different movements for the song. Yeah, I mean I I I think that um you know when I when I teach uh you know this the 54 to 68 civil rights movement and of course now we're talking about the mm-hmm. long civil rights movement I was going to say Jacqueline Dowd Hall. Freedom movement and said, and all those terms I think are really important. But when we talk about that period that is sort of treated iconically, so often the framework is, you know, black people fought to be included and then white people relented. And that's a flawed story. And a big piece of the story, in fact, is the enormous sacrifice that black people had to, uh, take on in order to open up the society and begin and to insist that it begin to live out some sort of basic precepts of the constitution. Right. So if you think about, you know, a huge, I think 40% of black principals lose their jobs in the midst of desegregation, you know, all of these teachers lose their jobs, all of these institutions, athletic directors, choir directors, all these people involved in the daily life of black institutions and particularly schools, you know, they, they sacrifice in order to get the society to open up, right? Where you can live where you want to theoretically, or you can go to school where you want to, you can vote. Right? Like, All these are theoretical. Right? Lord so knows. I think instead of, um, so I think for me, the, sh- the, 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 the frame has to be shifted to get, um, a sense, you know, it wasn't just, I mean, I think there is a piece of it that it was hard to anticipate, right? We, I don't know, although there were some mm-hmm. folks, you know, like Du Bois was like, nah, there is no way black children should be taught in white schools. He's like, it's not going to, they're not going to do right by black children. That's essentially what his response was. And so was Neil Hurston's, right? They didn't think this this desegregation agenda was the right thing. And for du, for Du Bois and Hurston, it was really telling because they had been trained at white institutions. Du Bois up through high school and Zora Neale Hurston is a graduate. So they knew of what they were talking about, right? Of course. Um, and so 
you know, and, and particularly given Du Bois' experience at Harvard. And so, um, so I think to think about, you know, there's a sacrifice that takes place. And it really does take several decades for the institutional life to really start to falter. And it, ha- it falters for Americans in general, right? So the cultural revolution of the, of the 60s creates an intergenerational rupture. Americans are disenchanted um, and younger people stop being so deeply involved in institutional life. It has a mu- I think it has a more um, deleterious effect for Black folks because we're more vulnerable in the society generally. But I do think sort of writing about institutional life for me is partly about making an argument about its significance and the the necessity for it to be revived. And that revival is definitely something that I truly also believe um, as well. And that's why I thought, um, you know, that that's why I. You know, even thinking about, you know, my family and, you know, growing mm-hmm. up in a uh, in a household where, you know, a lot of us go back to the AME Zion Church in North Carolina. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I got Baptist family members and, you know, so it's very much strict. You know, uh, uh, some of my family are, you know, straight, you know, uh, Brooklyn Pentecostals. Right. You yeah. know, so, so come from that. And so thinking yeah. about that. Um, and, you know, really the the pageantry that yeah. black institutional life, uh, which wasn't obviously exclusive to uh, uh, those in, in black uh, church communities, obviously black religiosity in general is something that is is much larger than Christianity. You know, your colleague at a. Uh, at, uh, at, at Princeton, Eddie Glaude is obviously someone who talks a lot about uh, black black religion. Um, mm-hmm. But um but more generally looking at how this particular song how did how did you know how did desegregation and i'm not i'm not going to say integration because <laughs> those are definitely different different terms. Uh, ter- different terms different terms but what did you know you spoke about what desegregation did for for black teachers for black really authority figures right that was yeah. black, mm-hmm. you know, really the 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 black teachers are the ones you know, whether in um, the in grade school or even in college, were really like the high. They were really huge in communities, right? Yes. And so, what happened? Not only, obviously, you spoke about what they what happened um, as far as jobs go, but how does desegregation decenter yeah. um, the song? And also, how does it later? How, how do black communities start to re re engage yeah. with it yeah. as well, and also change the name too? Right. Yeah. So this is great. So um, a couple of things. I mean, one, uh, you know, I really like the point that you make about your family and church, because in some ways, you know, the institutions that we still have are churches and HBCUs. That's what we still Mm -hmm. have. Right. Um, When it used to be the fact it used to be the case that, you know, literally every aspect of a black person's life would have some kind of institutional or associational structure, right? Mm-hmm. So we have two left and they're very precious and they're different types of religious institutes. You know, I live in Philly and there's, you know, the mo- mosques are essential um, black uh, religious. Yes, institutes. they are. Um, so yeah, so that's where we can still see it. I mean, I think, you know, what happens and actually you, you mentioned Eddie Glaude. I mean, he helped me a lot with this book because, you know, he in some ways wrote about the same phenomenon in an earlier era in his first book, Exodus, like about yes. institutional forms. And so, you know, what we see is uh, a couple things. One is that, you know, desegregation almost immediately means white flight. So as mm. a consequence, you know, there's a very brief window where and very few places where schools are meaningfully integrated. And in most instances, they become all black schools, but they're not black schools, right? They're schools with black children Uh, in them, but they're not black Mm -hmm. institutions. And the consequence is, you know, then you're not likely to have all of the, you know, black formalism, the ritual practices of which singing Lift Every Voice and Sing and having uh, assemblies and having black history lessons, all these sorts of things that were present in segregated schools, you're not, you, you, you cease having that. And there's a real one. It was really kind of powerful for me to read oral histories and memoirs where people talked about the deep sense of loss 
that occurred as a result of desegregation. And then you also have some standoffs. You know, have you have kids fighting in the midst of desegregation saying, oh no, now we're at your school, but you all need to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing because we want to be here, not just physically here, but we want to, yes. you know, so there's, so it becomes a, a touch point, a, a source of conflict. Um, but there's also this piece, I mean, so I talk in the book about how in the midst of the like mainstream civil rights movement, the freedom songs kind of displace Lift Every Voice and Sing. So it's like, we shall overcome and we shall not be moved. No <laughs> yes. songs. And yes. then in Black Power, it really comes back. And and part of the way that I, I read that is really the way that I read the history of, of the movement, which is essentially that Black people offer a vision of an integrated society, right? And that vision, although there's legislation, right, the vision is generally rejected by white America, right? Whether it's white flight from schools, from homes, whether it's, you know, the rise in the law and order politics, the growing conservatism, is backlash against civil rights. And so we ought to read Black power and Black consciousness. In some ways, it's the same way we read the post-Reconstruction period, um, that there's a turning inward and black people decide, okay, well, we, we, we made this suggestion. The society did what it did. Now we're going to build internally because so often what the narrative is, is, oh, black people just decided they hated, hated white folks and turned away, you know, like we were being so, you know, and, Mm-mm-mm. and so, and so much of black power and black consciousness was about returning to the resources of the past. After, in some ways, the the experiment in integration proved to be a failed one, and so the 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 descendants of migrants are returning to lift every voice and sing in the way that you know their their parents or they did before they moved north in the deep south, but now they're singing it with dashikis on and afros and power fists raised, and they're also talking about an African past. So there's a deep south past and an African past, and about what it means to build black communities and and really imagine quote unquote the black nation and this is of course influenced by kind of international politics and you know yeah uh, uh decolonial struggles and you know independence movements and all those sorts of things and so i think it's important to um to i, I know that's sort of a long-winded way of saying all this but it's really important that we you know we tell when we tell the story um, we tell the story true, and we are faithful to um, the integrity as well as the resilience of Black um, folks who were striving for liberation. Um, and and so often that period gets made into a caricature, as opposed to this incredible nobility. I mean, I think you know what it took to continue to wage a struggle, all those killings of of children, right? Um, you know, yes. and elderly people, and you know, basic civil rights, you know, they were blowing people up for wanting to exercise basic civil rights. And then when people got a little bit of them, they snatched the rug out from under under them again. You know what it means to still be able to go on into the next phase of the struggle. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. We have an amazing history. Yes, it is. And um, when I think about uh, your especially your your final uh, couple statements. I thought about you know Robin D G Kelly's work about freedom dreams, right? That not and also the the thought about um you know what Howard Thurman would say as well about not letting your um not letting your physical not your 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 present circumstances um stop you from dreaming about what a future could be like, um and, and acknowledging that you might not be there to uh, physically, you know, feel whatever that freedom that you're trying to break away from or they're trying to get free from. Um, but that fighting is, you know, it's still important, right? You talk about uh, the bombings, you know, you said you from Birmingham, Alabama, and you said, I believe you were born in 73. 72. So that means, uh, <laughs> if correct, you know, you, younger, but 72. So, uh, <laughs> Hey, hey, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I, I did that. You feel me? Like I, I, I did my, I did my best. Yeah, but um, you know, uh, nine, nine years before you were born, right? You know, you had, uh, you know, Angela Davis speaks about this when um she's interviewed about violence, um, and how America knows about violence because of the violence and en- enacted yeah. against uh, uh black folks, right? And so, 
um, I, I definitely, definitely see that in your work and how it, you're correct in, in, in your uh, assertion about how profound it was that people mm-hmm. continuously strived despite all of the yes. evidence to the contrary to say that their struggles will actually come out with something, right? That you'll actually get something, right? So people forget, right? We had King celebrations all, all through the wazoo in the last couple months and, and obviously yeah. touched on being a couple uh, days ago. But his most important time, at least, you know, I don't think it's the most important time, but what most people think is, is, you know, the mm-hmm. March on Washington for yep. jobs and freedom. It's like people forget, like people forget yeah, jobs and right. freedom. Like those are the three of the most important words that have been forgotten in the entirety of American history. And they don't, um, and they don't play the promise so, note. Uh, this speech, you know, this idea of the broken of promise. Course. They just play the dream part, but not the I'm holding this nation accountable part. Which was really the challenge. And and when you consider, uh, you know, talking about the Bank of American Justice, well, the Bank of America literally and figuratively definitely gave money to that memorial that <laughs> that was put um, in Washington. And I thought that was uh, a profound uh, 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 draw to the present because how monetization. Uh-huh. And how kind of, you know, I, I I don't even like this term, but that kind of it's a term that's being thrown around. But, you know, the need, quote unquote, neoliberal turn, yes. um, which is obviously very much true. But I just feel like it's it's a lot like um, intersectionality and positive yeah. respectability that it's being so much used that I wonder in it's the future exactly. if it's yeah. actual, yeah. you know, if it's actual uh, applications are going to be kind of weird away. But um what desegregation does, especially in the confines of your book, is that it disintegrates black folks, especially those who who are born in or into the 1970s, especially as far as education and educational attainment go, that it disintegrates the connective tissue, right, the connective threads that say that black folks are connected at the hip by experience, which means that if I hurt, you hurt too, and vice versa. But as, you know, uh, uh, predominantly, quote unquote, predominantly white institutions or historically white institutions, as Greg Carr at Howard would say, you see that black folks start to be like, you know, I'm about to be like, I'm an individual, bump all this collectivity stuff. I don't know you, you know, kind of, kind of that. So can you speak on that and kind of that turn as far as the 1970s and 80s? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think the, I say that the institutional turn happens in the seventies and eighties. And, and part of what is happening is sort of Different, ide- different ideas about how black folks proceed. And certainly a piece of it is uh, a kind of capitalist um, kind of uh, aspiration, you know, that, that um, which in some ways the song gets attached to as well, that is much more individualized. It's about sort of gaining access to wealth. Um, and then there's the branch gaining access to political power, the rise of black mayors, which is really important. Um, so that even as institutional life is waning, there's a lot of important political gains. Um, but I think, you know, I think this question about the neoliberal turn is really important because what the song was doing, you know, it was interpreting experience in order to give people who were seeing it an ideological frame for understanding the world um, and a sense of linked fate and common responsibility. So one of the things I often say is, so Clarence Thomas, for example, talks about his experience, um, you know, growing up Geechee uh, all the time, right? And I'm, right? hey, I, me too. Right. My family, uh, daddy's right. family from so there too. So he tells that story and we're like, well, how does he get to be this sort of awful far-right conservative? It's because his interpretation of what that meant is is one that doesn't value a sense of the common good, doesn't value uh, a, re, a, a reckoning with the wages of American racism, all these sorts of things. So I think it's really important. Institutions socialize people into understanding, into analyzing, into having a set of values. And that seems to me to be the loss or the cost is so when we get, you know, an incredible, when we see kind of self, a blind self interestedness um, or, you know, a kind of investment in, you know, market over community, 
that's that's partly a failure you know, a community-wide failure to sort of take seriously what does it mean to nurture and cultivate people who have a sense of responsibility to the fellow, to the members of their community. You know. Exactly. And I, I also think as well, when you bring up, you know, what's also happening in the 1970s and 1980s, as far as when I think about also the song, I think about it as well within going back to the Black church and how the yeah. rise of the Black televangelist, obviously there are white televangelists, but, you know, we talk about Black folks here. So, um, right. <laughs> you know, so the rise of the Black televangelist, but not also televangelists, but also the Black prosperity gospel, which I think oh, yeah. is also... Um, I, I forget his name, but there's a scholar at Spelman who's talked about this about uh, the the uh, black money, you know, and 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 um, black church white money um, as well. And so thinking about yeah, also um, how the rise of this turn, which I don't necessarily think it's as much of a turn as more as the rise of technology, right? Black people are always getting killed, but the technology has changed to be able to show it. Right. And so. Um, as these technological changes happen with television and such like that, and, and you know, kind of disp- is on the rise to kind of displace uh, uh, um, the importance of radio. Um, but hip hop will kind of change that. But that's a we'll talk about profits of the hood offline. But um, kind of this rise, I think, is something that uh, I think coincides with it, especially in connection to a song like "Lift Every Voice and Sing." Right. I think that's something that people have to also remember is that no matter what you call. Um, the Negro National Anthem, you know, the hymn or yeah. uh, uh, whatever term, it's lift every yeah. voice. No, it's right? about a collective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. And, and you know, I think um, I, I think that, you know, it's it's great to mention. I think the televangelist phenomenon was really interesting because it privatized spirituality in a way that's sort of anathema to the way black people worship. Right. So. If you can, you are sitting at home by yourself having a virtual experience, right? Or seeing, you know, that you sort of mail in money as opposed to touching someone's hand or holding them, right? It's a very different kind of experience. Um, and it's a different notion. And it's also, as opposed to let's get this money together to, you know, build this church there's this phenomenon of saying like that your ability to display excess is a value is a sign of God's grace. I mean, it's a very different theology. Um, now, of course there are always strands, like you said, it's not a complete turn because there's always strands of, of all these different ways of being at every moment in history, but there are moments when something is heightened and you say, Oh, okay, wait, this is indicative of, of, of a social change or sea change that's taken place. Right. It, it makes you think of like when Beyonce saying, hold up, like, hold up, hold on, hold on. Like the, the same, the same brand new. It's just like, you know, like you said, it's, it's something that's more pronounced. Um, and so bringing, bringing the black national anthem into the present context, right. Um, especially in a post uh, 1990s new millennium kind of, kind of world. What, what is the what is the Black National Anthem's presence like in Black communities today? Um, especially when you, especially at the end of your book, you make a particular call for Black folks to to come back, as you said earlier. Yeah, and I, you know, I really try to not say Black folks need to sing this song, right? But we definitely need that kind of practice. We need, because there's something that happens when you stand shoulder to shoulder to other people with a common purpose and you sing together or you recite words together. There's a, there's a kind of emotional uh, register that you can access that's very different than just performing a bunch of tasks, right? It's, it's, and it's part of what builds an investment in working with other people. And I think it's necessary because, you know, and recently, you know, there's been all kind of dire economic data about black folks in the United States. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's true. And it's true for black folks all over the world. Right. And and it's not novel, um, but it is one of these things where you recognize how trenchant, how deep American racism and inequality and injustice continue to be and that they're deepening. And it doesn't work if we want flourishing for black folks of any sort, whether the vision is like a socialist state or the vision is, you know, black folks moving on up like the Jefferson. There you go. Whatever the case 
may be, we need, we have to pool resources and energies. An individualistic approach um, is not, doesn't work for folks who are broke. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it doesn't work for folks who are vulnerable. And it doesn't work for folks who are locked up. Right? So we need to find communities in which we're trying to imagine futures together to pool resources, right? So, the, I mean, everybody being, and one of the things I, I, I love, um, Mindy Fillolove's book, Root Shock, which is about mm-hmm. the impact, you know, of um, of urban renewal or Negro removal, as people used to say, and d- displacement mm-hmm. and these sort of, and, you know, and I, I, I find it so instructive because if you think all these cycles of Black people being displaced through gentrification, through building works, all these sorts of things, fray the sort of day-to-day ties that people have. And the same thing with evictions, right? Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, is about this, right? When you're constantly being forced, pushed out, moved around. And when you don't have those networks of support, people get more and more vulnerable, right? Um, that's, I mean, we have to figure out ways and we know that we can do it because we did it historically, you know, of, of, of strengthening those ties, um, and working in community together. I mean, it's just, um, I think it's essential. Um, and it's not just like, I'm going to go, you know, for those of us who are college educated and have some, ex- not just, I'm going to go do some service somewhere. It's actually investing in community, which is which is a, a much deeper commitment, but one in which we learn um, much more than than if we just consider ourselves giving some some form of charity. And, and I also think about a book that really changed my life from uh, uh, someone who's from Philadelphia, where you're presently living, uh, going back to Michael Mont Hill's book with um, a Classroom in the Cell yes. with uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Yeah. And he talked about uh, in that book how listening and you talk about investment, right? Yeah. So listening is investing in the ideas of somebody else, right? Uh, and and how hearing someone is more so that performance of just kind of all right. I'm waiting for you to, to to stop, or I will literally not wait, and I'll just interject. And I'm not really invested in what you're trying to say. I'm trying to just you know tr- trying to bite back in like kind of like the sound bite world that we live in. But there's something to be said for like I gave a um uh, a, a a program I provided a program for uh, a local school here in Boston called Boston Green Academy where a colleague of mine at the National Park Service we uh, we had the students um, uh, read and, and digest work and, and and writings from black abolitionists here oh, in Boston okay. and right and and we had some of them um, we had we had about uh, ten groups and we had each student speak. Uh, uh, they 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 perform the speech that they were provided, and that's black when I think about that's in, it, yes, right, that's beautiful, yeah, right, absolutely. And so it, it was so great because about ninety eight percent of the students were of color, and you know, break it down, they're they're good about half that were African American or black uh, largely, and I thought it was just so beautiful because how those students realize like that yes. This was a group of people who were fighting against slavery, an institution that was so large. There was nothing in front of them that said that slavery would ever end, but yet they still fought. And some of them even got to see Jubilee, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But as we also realized, considering this was the Monday, this is this Monday, we saw, I I, uh, brought up the 60 Minutes, uh, about 14 minute um, interview that Oprah Winfrey had uh, about um, uh, the lynching uh, memorial that is down in Montgomery, Alabama, which is opening at the end of this Mm -hmm. month. And you heard a collective like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, from the students. And so what I brought up was how slavery ended, the day of Jubilee, emancipation finally came. And yet- lynching Jim Crow, which Jim Crow is already in Massachusetts and New England and in the North already, right? It had been there, right? For, for at least a generation. And so all these things are continually happening. And yet African-Americans, right? We're still fighting for our freedom. So what it was, it was like, you're making this call to, to arms for black folks, you know, not to arm people like, you know, Killer Mike was talking about uh, <laughs> recently with uh, Joy and Reed, but, uh, but as a call yes, we know, we uh, for will black never folks. We have enough guns to win. That's not a win. <laughs> look, look, I was like, come on, brother. Come on, brother. Come on, brother. But, but looking at how both of us are making these particular calls and in mind, I'm making the call to the students that I want this activity to make y'all feel empowered. 
to make a change. If so, if it's gun violence in your community through collectives, not through the individual, but through the collective sense that we're met here by circumstance, but we can change because of how we mm-hmm. come together. That's that is, you know, that was yeah. the point of that activity, right? And so, you know, making this investment in them um, and not just let this be a standalone program, but it's something that goes further. And that's what I think is in the embodiment of Lift Every Voice and seeing that it was created in Jacksonville, Florida, or at least by folks from Jacksonville. But it was transmitted to Black folks to show the collective and the connective threads that bind us no matter the region that we come into this world. Because Malcolm said it best. Y'all need to stop talking about the South because if you're south of the Canadian border, you're south. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they used to call it up North Alabama, up South and down South. All those. <laughs> Look, and we both, I'm presently, and you were, you were, you, you spent a lot of time in, yeah. you know, the greater Boston area out there in Cambridge. So we all know, you know, obviously you see what happened in the 1970s, right? With the, oh, the, the black man who almost got killed, right? No. Down at, uh, no, you know, I used to, people would tell, ask me one of the, I'll, I know we have to end soon, but I was want to tell you this story. People used to always say to me, oh, it must have been such a transition to go from Alabama to Massachusetts, you know, as though Alabama was the scary place and Massachusetts was, you know, the panacea. And I said, look, by the time I was old enough to notice Birmingham, Alabama was a black city. And Massachusetts and Boston in particular were this, was the place where white folks were trying to kill school children in the bus, right? So, of course. So my experience of Massachusetts was the site of, of racial terror, not Alabama. You know, and this is this this misperception. Yeah, no, it's 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 a lesson for all of us. It's a lesson for all of us. That it is, and we are definitely uh, the New Books Network listeners in African-American studies are definitely uh, uh, glad that, you know, we had you today to uh, teach us a lesson, um, you know, about ourselves. Right. Um, And so going forward, uh, I'm very interested to know uh, what else you're working on. Um, You know, now that this book is uh, wrapped up and, you know, I, I, I realize you, you know, you seem to, it ain't just one book that you got. You seem to always got a couple things cooking up in the pot, like a stir fry, as amigos. Yeah, I like a lot of stuff going on at the same time. So in September, I have a book coming out called "Looking for Lorraine: The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry." Um, that's coming out with Beacon Press, and then I also have a book called "Vexy Thing on Gender and Liberation," which is a book of feminist theory that. Um, looks at the sort of foundation of the idea of patriarchy in the age of empire and then brings it in conversation with the current moment with uh, hypermedia, um, you know, uh, late capitalism, the digital age, all that stuff and trying to think through gender in this moment. So that's what's coming up later this year. That's also September. Good God almighty. Good God <laughs> almighty. Now I definitely know you, Dr. Teresa Perry daughter. Lord yes. knows, I know now. Good Lord. Uh, well, hey, you know, we um I I'll 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 take it for, for the listeners on this one, but it's been a pleasure. And we oh, definitely so Yeah, and we definitely want you to be able uh you have an open invitation for both of those books, uh uh to, to for you for you to come on and be interviewed um in the fall. Because, um, you know, I, I definitely believe that your work is uh, a work that we all need in this particular moment in the world where sometimes we might feel like we're alone. But then you have those that talk about lifting every voice and singing. And so that also means us and bringing us out of potential despair, which obviously some parts of our moment uh, can bring about. But the greatest part uh, about Black life is in large part our resilience and 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 what we create from um our our resiliency which Du Bois talks about being the foundation of of American popular culture for better for worse. Yes. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to you again. I really appreciate it. Yes. Absolutely. And once again, listeners, we have just had the opportunity to have all these knowledge bombs dropped on us by Dr. Imani Perry. Uh, and who, she is 
at uh, Princeton University. And um, can, can we find you um, on Twitter or yeah. any, if people have particular questions about the book? My name, Imani Perry. That's, the, that's my Twitter handle. Yep. Very good. Well, once again, for May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem was published by UNC Press this year. And uh, believe me, you're going to want to go and get this book because <laughs> I read it and it, it, it just, boom, changed the life, changed the life. And I'm sure it will be for you. And so signing off and until next time, New Books in African-American Studies listeners, can't wait to talk to you again. <laughs>